Hey, Hit Factory listeners, it's Aaron. It's Carly. And we wanted to take a brief moment to talk about a very special series that we're going to be doing for the entirety of this month, Scott Timber. It's going to be a special series dedicated to the 90s output of the late, great Tony Scott. We have a bunch of great guests coming your way, some old friends of the show, some brand new ones. We're going to be talking about Days of Thunder. Enemy of the State. Freaking The Fan. The Last Boy Scout. And my favorite. My favorite as well. Crimson Tide. Crimson Tide. Hit Factory patrons will have access to all five Scott Timber episodes, as well as bonus content and conversations coming your way this month. So for just $5 a month, consider becoming a patron of the show. Consider it. Might change your life. (laughs) It might just change your life. It might just change your life. So join us for the entire month as we talk about NASCAR, ice cream, Lipizzaner Stallions, leather pants, the number 11, the surveillance state, and a whole lot more. You brought up something that I, I thought about for a while with Tony Scott, but I have I've never articulated till right now. Where like yeah, his emotions, how he plays with emo, how not how he plays with emotions, but how he uses emotions in his films. It feels like a merger of like a bunch of different genres. Like I wouldn't call like any Tony Scott movies like pure melodrama, but he definitely has like very like melodramatic like uh, instincts in how he like is willing to like just fully like submerge like specific moments or scenes into one emotion and he's able to like breathlessly just switch to another emotion without it ever feeling like whiplash like he just yes he's just a master of it he's just he just understands the form to like a level that I don't think any other filmmaker of like the last like th- mainstream American filmmaker has in the last like 30 years. There's there's a, a common critique of Tony, you know, that his movies are style over substance. But, I, you know, when I think about it more and as we've like, you know, gone through some of the, the films of his career and spent a lot of time with them and considered them for the sake of the show you realize that like for him to do something that narratively had so much busyness in it as what he's doing visually would almost like nullify what he's doing on camera. Mm -hmm. It would just almost be too much. You know, I, I think that he's, he's really, really good at giving us like more than the eye can take in, in his actual like compositions, like in the film itself. So that you want to watch it again. You want to like do these repeat viewings. You want to take in more of it and understand the way he's composing things. To to muddle that even further with like creating something that is, you know, a complex web of lies and deceit. Like you know, imagining Tony Scott do something like a Chinatown or like a Maltese Falcon just seems like it would be beside the point. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. um, and so like there's there's no better person I think to like elevate what a lot of people consider pulp and trash. Uh, than Tony you know he's he's taking something usually very simplistic usually driven by uh, very easy to understand and follow plot mechanisms and emotional elements and and turning it into something like that is actually transcendent I'm gonna keep saying it but it's it's exactly what Warhol did (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, he's yeah. the cinematic. I'm gonna Warhol. die on that hill. That's a hill I've built myself, and I will die there. I think it's a great comparison. Yeah. I think that I think that you're absolutely right. You know, like Warhol himself is somebody who is, I think, often derided and misunderstood. I I will say that for a long time, I was guilty of, you know, despising Warhol because of the way that it frustrated my perception of like what art is or what it's supposed to be. And I don't think that Tony's any different. You know, that's mm-hmm. the point, man. I know. I mean, look, look at look at the box office for this film like this was this was a dud and it and he is constantly eviscerated by critics throughout his career and the best thing about tony is that he knows that Mm -hmm. like he he never shies away from acknowledging and admitting like the press and the critics they do not like me and yet he still found a way to just like be wholly his own person to continue to evolve his style and the elements of his like his visual language, even up to the end of his career, you know, he didn't get old and stale and boring. Mm -hmm. He didn't like fall into a cycle. He just like continued to experiment and make things that like Domino, which you mentioned earlier, Valerie are some of the most experimental and interesting things in his entire career, you know, that he's doing near the end of it. I I actually had never looked at the box office for the fan and I thought it did like fine. And I was, I'm now shocked looking at like, yeah, 18 million against a $55 million budget. Wow. Oh my God. And when you consider the cast too, Mm -hmm. like that, that in and of itself wouldn't be enough to draw people. But I think it is like, I mean, it's, it's evidence of this thing we keep talking about, which is that, you know, the kind of perception that people may have had for Tony Scott's about Tony Scott and his work, I think like clearly got in the way of people actually like enjoying his movies and, Mm -hmm. uh, and to a large extent, that's not true. Right. When you think about some of the really incredible, um, movies that just like were popular successes as well, like a Top Gun or a Crimson Tide. But so many of these other movies that we've been talking about, like didn't really do all that well in the box office. And so it feels like he's always kind of like trudging this uphill battle, even when he has really fantastic editors and cinematographers, really fantastic editors. Like he has all of the pieces and he makes something that we can very patently see is perfect cinema Mm -hmm. and yet you know your average movie going audience is uh often finding his work grotesque i mean again that's like that's warhol Mm -hmm. yeah one of the one of the films that we haven't talked about yet that uh is easy to draw parallels to is another sports film or sort of quasi sports film of the 90s specifically 1996 when this movie comes out uh jerry Maguire. yes which does phenomenally well you know has a, a massive take in terms of box office wins a whole bunch of awards and i just find it really interesting that these two feel like very opposite messages in terms of the relationship between athlete and manager athlete and fan and like the celebrity element of those things. You know, one of these is about the partnership to personally enrich, uh, even through like a process of like exploitation or through exploitative mechanisms. And this movie is like shunning all of that Mm -hmm. and saying this whole thing is, is really kind of fucked up and toxic. So it doesn't, 
it doesn't surprise me, I think, that a 96 audience may have felt a little repulsed by something that was so clearly trying to hold a mirror up to our own impulses of celebrity and, and fandom, while something that leans wholly into it makes a bunch of money and gets awards. But mm-hmm. uh, it is it is an interesting comparison to make. It's very yeah. true. Yeah, now that I'm thinking of it, like... I, I haven't done like the Cameron Crow like dive, but I'm just gonna say now like he's the anti Tony. He's the anti Tony. <laughs> he totally he is. is. Cameron Crow is the anti Tony. You heard it here first. That's a, a great take. My friend Michael actually uh, he he's recently started doing this thing where he just plays movies all day on Twitch and. Uh, he recently had like a Cameron Crow run and like you logged them all in Letterboxd and he gave like every almost every single one of them a one star. <laughs> <laughs> even even we bought a zoo, Valerie. Yes. 